What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. And thank you, Scott. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead of us today. Buy the dip is something you're often told from strategists on Wall Street. But what if there aren't any dips to buy? Plus, Inspiring America. We'll speak with one of the key researchers behind the Pfizer vaccine about the breakthrough technology and why she's not overly concerned about all those COVID variants right now. And as Apple announced its new lineup this week, a key supplier was suffering a multi-million dollar ransomware attack aimed at stealing Apple's product blueprints. We'll tell you what we know on this developing story ahead, but we do begin with the markets. And Dom Chu is here with the very latest for us. And people did buy the dip, Kelly, because you're seeing green on the screen today so far. Even the dips from this morning, they were pretty shallow. We were marginally lower for certain of the indices, but you can see here decently higher, up by about two-thirds of 1% for the Dow Industrials. Now 34,050, the last trade there. 41.58 for the S&P, up by about one-half of 1% in the Nasdaq. Similar percentage gains, 13,862, the last trade there. Powering some of the gains today has been some of the dip buying in the reopening trade type stocks, the ones that are banking on the economy getting going again. Norwegian Cruise Lines on travel side of things up about 7%. They're helped by an analyst upgrade over at Goldman Sachs. United Airlines also 1.5% gains there. Caesars Entertainment on the casino side and Occidental Petroleum, 5% gains there for the oil and gas giant. So we'll talk about those particular moves. And then, of course, the IPO du jour, the IPO of the day, UiPath, those shares opened up at 65 half after pricing at $56 a piece. Now, one measure of market value at that level of pricing for the IPO price puts its market value at around $31 billion. It got up as high as around $70-some dollars in change. That puts its valuation upwards of nearly $39 to $40 billion. So this automation software company is certainly one of those stocks to keep an eye on. It signals perhaps there is still an appetite for even traditional IPOs, especially when it comes to automation software and that, that sort of thing, Kelly. $40 billion is a huge number, yeah, even if it was a, rel- a very small float. But, Dom, I want to ask you about what we were just talking about. Um, with the, all the market volatility in general the past few months, we haven't seen any big major dips other than a couple of brief pullbacks, right? They, and they've gotten shallower. I mean, one measure of stock market volatility is the S&P 500 volatility index, the VIX, so to speak. It's around 18 right now. To give you some context, the longer term trend lines are around 20. It's still very, very, very shallow in terms of volatility. But take a look at the S&P over the last year. The last time we saw any kind of real dip, really, you can see that was about an 8% dip back in June of last year. Here in September and October, those were the bigger ones. We were down roughly 9 10% at that point there. And then you can see here the dips we've seen as of late, much shallower. We're talking 3 to 4% at that level. So, yes, the stock market volatility has gotten shallower and shallower the closer we've got to these levels we've seen today. That's a worrying sign, though, I will say, Kelly, for some traders out there who think that it's a sign of complacency and that we could be due for a deeper pullback at some point. But right now, the markets are constructive, still near record highs. Now we're going to talk to my next guest about whether he is worried about that or not. Dom, thank you. Let's dive a little deeper into why the dips are drying up lately and what it tells us about the stock market staying power. Joining me now is Brian Reynolds. He's the chief market strategist at Reynolds Strategy. Brian, it's good to see you again. Welcome. Welcome back, Kelly. Thank you. So, 
Are, let's, let's put it this way. You have also highlighted the fact that the dips are going away lately. Are you worried about that, though, or do you take that as a positive sign? I view that as a positive sign because the forces driving this equity bull market are stronger than the last bull market. Back then, from 2009 to 2020, it was just debt-fueled stock buybacks. Now those are coming back. I said they were dead last April. Now they're coming back. But we're also seeing retail participation. We're also seeing new forms of shadow banking, which is non-traditional lending. So we're seeing companies like insurance companies find new ways to lever up their investments to try and get higher yields in the market's offering. So this is more powerful than the last bull market. That's remarkable because we've often spoken about how big a contributor stock buyback, you know, corporate stock buybacks are to an ongoing rally and to an ongoing expansion. We thought maybe it was unique last time around. Maybe with the pandemic, people were going to use their money to pay down debt instead of starting stock buybacks again. But as you point out, Kohl's, I mean, if anybody who's been hurt by the pandemic, Kohl's increased the size of its stock buyback. How about this? Procter & Gamble raised its buyback by a billion dollars yesterday. Netflix approved a $5 billion buyback program yesterday. Whirlpool, $2 billion repurchase program Monday. Bank of America, $25 billion approved last Thursday. And the Kohl's program that I already mentioned. How, how big on aggregate here are we talking? I think by the end of summer, it'll be easier to list the companies that are not doing buybacks than the ones you just listed. During the summer, there were less than 100 firms buying back stock. Two months ago, that was up to about 145 companies. Now it's up to about 177 companies. So I think once again, we'll see more companies, most companies in the S&P 500, doing stock buybacks. But this time around, we've also got retail participation and we've got increased shadow banking. That doesn't mean we won't have any dips going forward. I've written that I think we'll have another uh, taper tantrum sometime in 2022. But I think the dips will be shallower and briefer than we saw in the last bull market on average. So two follow up questions on this. The first, a lot of people ask, you know, isn't this sort of a frothy sign? And don't companies always buy at the highs? I mean, they are not known for being good stock timers. Um, So what would you say about this idea that, you know, companies just keep buying at higher and higher prices? And maybe that itself is something that you'd want to lean against instead of chasing. Well, it went on for 11 years in the last cycle. So the only way to time it was when the credit cycle ended, and that happened when the virus kicked in. So if the virus hadn't kicked in, they'd still be buying stocks, and we would probably still be around these levels. We had a detour because of the virus. I said that stock buybacks were dead, and they were for about six months. I said debt buybacks would be ascendant, but I thought it would take a year for the debt buybacks to happen. It took three months. Wow. And then we did it again. We refinanced twice. And now junk bond yields hit an all-time low a few months ago. There are only a few basis points above that. So every company that comes to the bond market is borrowing near the lowest yields ever. That gives them more borrowing power. And they're increasingly using that to buy back stock. So you hear all this, Brian, and you wonder if this is just too much financial engineering or to put it differently, you know, is there a macro case that can continue to support this? And to add on to that, if everyone goes, geez, I listened to this Brian guy and I think he's right. And we saw it last time. We're going to see it this time. So I'm going to go triple leverage up long and it fuels this kind of market euphoria. I mean, we've seen it in GameStop. We've seen it in parts of crypto, maybe for different reasons. But why? what happens if the entire investment universe suddenly goes, you know what, I want to be overly leveraged and long? We're not at that point yet. And I'm not encouraging anyone to go out and lever up their own portfolios. They need to put make decisions based on their own circumstances. But our main investor are public pensions. Number two is insurance companies. And they're bringing in money hand over fist. 
And the money, the, the yield they need to make is around seven and a half for pensions, around 6% for mm-hmm. insurance companies. The yields are at all time lows around 4% in junk. That's a historic gap. That means that every tax dollar that our pensions bring in, every dollar that insurance companies raise has to be invested as aggressively as ever in the history of finance if they're to make their above market yield bogeys. So we're just beginning this process. I think it's going to intensify over the next few years. Whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, I can't moralize, but I can say that I think it's going to increase. And I take your point. So where does this leave the Fed? You mentioned the taper tantrum uh, concern. Do you think we could start hearing them talk about asset prices? I mean, we're not there yet, obviously, but if it gets to that point. I think we will hear them talk about that, but one of their main priorities is to reliquify the banking system after a crisis. And the virus really got bank assets and liabilities out of whack. So the Fed, I think, is going to keep rates low until banks reliquify. Now, this few, last few weeks, we've taken a big step toward that. We've seen record amounts of bank bond deals as investors. Again, those pensions, those insurance companies are rushing to fund them. But that's created a situation now where banks and bond investors are competing against each other to see who can give away the most money to companies mm. on the easiest terms. <laughs> that process just began in the last week, week and a half or so. Pretty good time to be uh, maybe in the treasurer's office in corporate America. It's fascinating the way you connect all the dots, Brian, uh, and it's uh, unconventional. So we appreciate it very much. Thank you. See you again soon. Thanks, Shelley. Brian Reynolds of Reynolds Strategy. Speaking of the bond market, we're getting some results from the 20-year auction today. Rick Santelli has more. Rick? Yes, Kelly, this is the 12th, the 12th uh, 20-year auction since they brought it back. And this was a good one. The grade for demand at 1 a.m. Eastern, I gave a B plus, boy plus. Uh, let's go through it. The yield at the Dutch auction, 2.144. Now, that was lower than when the one issue was traded, so lower yield, of course, is a higher price. Uh, 2.42 bid to cover, well above average. But here's the real highlight. On indirects, which is kind of like pension fund, or excuse me, uh, the foreign entities that we like to pay closest attention to, that was the weak link at 58.7. But direct bidders, hedge funds, pension funds, like the gentleman was just describing all those buyers in the Treasury market, they were aggressive. 20.2, the highest of all 12 auctions, and dealers took the least amount at 21.1% of all the dozen 20-year auctions. So some big highlights there that really do accentuate the notion the long maturities still find some love on the investor side. Kelly, back to you. Rick Santelli rounding things out for us. Thank you very much, Rick. Let's turn now to Netflix, seeing a big drop today after those disappointing numbers last night. The company only added 4 million global subscribers in its first quarter. That was far below the street's 6.1 million estimate. But Stiefel Scott Devitt is upgrading the stock to a buy, and it's because of the bad quarter. He joins me now to explain. Scott, it's good to have you. Uh, tell me why. Well, you know, if you go back to, to 2020, I mean, Netflix clearly had a pull forward in its business, and we actually downgraded the stock on the back, on the back of the first quarter last year when the company added 15.8 million subs. It was the strongest quarter in history in terms of net sub ads by about 60%. Netflix went on to, to have the second you know, best quarter in history in the second quarter, and then the business began to fade just because of the fact that there were so many subscribers that were added in the early part of the pandemic. And so we've been sitting back and just kind of waiting for the capitulation moment where you know, the sub estimates would finally come into line with with you know this new reality, and now we think the stock's been mostly de-risked. Um, you could have another three to nine months of kind of transition period, but when you look at Netflix on an annual basis, you know what's so interesting is there's so much volatility in their quarterly subs, but 
In 2018 and 2019, Netflix added 57 million subs. In 2020 and 21, based on our estimates, they'll add 57 million subs. It just so happens that 8 million of those subs got pulled into 2020. So there's really not a story here when you, when you step back and look at the long-term aspects of the model. And so we decided to step back in today because we thought the news was mostly in the stock. Sure. And just to reiterate, you have a $560 price target. You upgraded it to a buy today. Um, why is this the capitulation moment? I mean, an 8 or even a 13% move at the lows after the kind of run it's had is not a... It's not exactly capitulation, or maybe it is, because we were just talking about how there's rarely any dips to buy in the stock market and how yeah. they've been one of the people uh, involved with stock buybacks. But why shouldn't the stock be dead money for a while? You know, what's the case for it to accelerate higher when all of that growth you're talking about is now in the past and not in the future? It could be. And, um, you know, what's interesting is when you look at the history of Netflix, they tend to miss a quarter a year on average. Um, this year's unique. Last year was quite unique. Um, you know, and so it's possible that this period lasts longer than one quarter reset. And that's something that we said in our note. This could be a kind of three to nine month window where before it's, you know, it's back to normal. But, um, but you know, when you, again, when you take a step back, I mean, this is a business now that trades at mid 30s to upper 30s times forward earnings multiple. That's now cash generative or on the verge of being cash generative. It has a buyback in place that has the capacity to generate $90 billion worth of free cash flow that can be utilized for buybacks over the next decade. It's like a, it's a totally different story now and be do, been de-risk in so many different ways on top of just this sub number sure. you know, because of, of it also becoming self-funding during this period as well. And so I could see it at 490 to 510, 520 for some time. But this from here with a multi-year horizon is probably a 15% annualized compound. So you mentioned the $70 million. My last question is, is that all going to stock buybacks? How much needs to continue to be spent on content when this kind of global appetite for content and the competitors that it has to buy against are higher than ever? So let me uh, you know, kind of clarify that comment. Netflix currently spends around $17 to $18 billion annually on content. We expect that that will grow to $35 billion over the next decade. But as the company has now turned free cash flow positive, it should begin to generate cash more consistent with its operating earnings as they're taxed. And so over that time period, we anticipate that they'll have about $90 billion of unlevered free cash that mm. the company can use to recapitalize the business, which is roughly 40% of the current market cap. So you have steady growth, rising margins, you know, a clear global leader with a reasonable PE multiple and the capacity now to recapitalize the company as yeah. they grow. That's very interesting. I hadn't heard that argument been made before. Scott, thanks so much today. We appreciate it. Thank you. Scott Devitt of Stiefel. Coming up, as COVID began to make its way around the world, a husband and wife team in Germany got to work and developed what is now the Pfizer vaccine. I've had the first shot. We'll speak with them about what we'll speak with one of them next about what the COVID fight could look like going forward. Plus, supply disruptions have hit almost every industry from autos to retailers. Is relief on the way or will the log jams get even worse? That's all ahead on The Exchange. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? 
Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. Spy is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Exchange. We are leading up to the launch of an NBC special event called Inspiring America. We're highlighting extraordinary people making a positive impact in their communities. And my next guest certainly fits the bill. Today, we are thrilled to welcome one of the scientists behind Pfizer and BioNTech's COVID-19 mRNA vaccine, Dr. Oslem Turici. She's the chief medical officer and co-founder of BioNTech. It's great to have you here. Welcome. Thank you, Kelly. It's a pleasure to to be here. I have a number of questions about the vaccine and COVID right now. But first, what's it been like for somebody you and your husband have described yourselves as the kind who celebrate over a quiet cup of tea? What is all of this attention like for you? And do you enjoy it? Or is it uh, do you feel like it's almost your duty to uh, be one of the chief communicators globally about this uh, disease and how to fight it? Um, uh, we are very focused on our work and we have to be uh, because uh, we still are in the pandemic situation. Um, uh, however, we also feel that uh, we have to communicate and be very transparent about uh, our vaccine, the data we have obtained with it and educate uh, the global community about it. As I understand, you were working with this mRNA technology to treat cancer patients. You then pivoted uh, as the pandemic struck and were able to come up with a vaccine fairly quickly. Um, now the concern, we've heard it from Pfizer themselves saying we might need a third shot. Uh, what would your explanation be of why that might be necessary? And do you think it will be? Um, yes, I, I think that it will be because it is the nature of immune responses that uh, after they have been induced, they spike and stay for a time. But with time, uh, immune responses wane. And uh, we see indications for this also in the induced, but also the natural immune response against uh, SARS-CoV-2. We see this waning of immune responses also in uh, people who were just infected and therefore also expected with the vaccine. So Yes, there will be uh, an additional boost uh, necessary, and we might uh, uh, see this, the uh, situation that, uh, similar to flu shots, uh, we would need yearly or uh, every second year uh, additional shots. That said, why are you not overly concerned about the mutation of this virus? Uh, you think that there, we are being somewhat effective or perhaps that we're not overly vulnerable to mutations causing anything like what we saw as this first spread around the globe over the past year? Um, uh, mutations are uh, uh, in the nature of viruses. It's, it's uh, expected and, and, and uh, natural that a virus which replicates uh, also, also mutates. So uh, what we are seeing, variants which are occurring, that's, that is not a surprise. The uh, question is, uh, will variants uh, occur which escape the immune response generated either by our vaccines or by natural infections? We, uh, at the moment, don't have indications for virus escape, at least for the variants we 
uh, have circulating now. Uh, however, it's important that we continue to uh, gather data uh, and to analyze whether um, any of the variants uh, which occur escape the immune response and be prepared uh, for uh, um, ad adapting our vaccine to a novel variant of concern, mm. which is easy, easy to do with mRNA vaccines. Interesting. Well, and, and that's somewhat reassuring. You know, the long-term question that is often everybody talks about, you know, um, when they're now allowed to gather together in some kind of informal neighborhood setting is, we, what happens if we all grow two heads, you know, in 30 years because of these vaccines we've been taken and this reference to this idea that they're, you know, unproven and untested and this is a giant science experiment on the population? I mean, when you hear these concerns from people who say we've all just signed up to take the same thing that we have one year's uh, study uh, about, what do you tell people to reassure them that there won't be long lasting negative effects as a result of the vaccines that we're taking to fight off COVID? Yeah, um, our vaccine and all other COVID vaccines uh, have gone through the, uh, through the usual set, uh, steps of clinical development, which are optimized to ensure uh, identification of risks and mitigating them and really assessing uh, potential uh, risks of a vaccine or of any medicine. So in principle, the way this vaccine was developed is, uh, is uh, according to rigorous scientific, ethical, regulatory standards. Uh, the difference to, um, so to say, normal vaccine development is because everyone has worked together. All these processes have been compressed and it was feasible to develop the vaccine within only uh, 10 months. Um, uh, so uh, what I would say is that in principle, everything we could assess and which would be normally assessed for a vaccine in order to ensure that it has, uh, it, uh, it has tolerability uh, has been assessed for this vac vaccine as well. And in the meantime, uh, as you know, millions of uh, people have been already vaccinated and this all happens under rigorous obs uh, observation of potential effects of the vaccine and assessment of uh, any reports of potential side effects. Yeah, although I admit I snuck out a little early from the 15-minute waiting period myself. Uh, Dr. Auslem Turecci, thank you so, so much for your time today and for the work that you've done. Thank you. We really appreciate it. Thank you. And you'll be hearing from many other incredible individuals on Inspiring America, the 2021 Inspiration List. It airs Saturday, May 1st on NBC at 8 p.m. and here on CNBC on Sunday, May 2nd at 3 p.m. Eastern Time. Still ahead, while Apple was showing off its shiny new toys yesterday, one of its key suppliers was in the midst of a ransomware attack and a pretty expensive one. We've got the details of this developing story. Plus, forget your credit card, cash or phone. Amazon wants you to pay with your palm now. That story is ahead. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Edinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.
Welcome back to The Exchange. Let's get you a check on the market right now. We're pretty much near session highs with the Dow up 230 points today, a rebound after the declines we've seen the past couple of sessions. And the Nasdaq is leading the way up about seven tenths of a percent. Let's check on the sectors where materials and energy are your leaders today. Gains of about 1.3 percent, not major. Utilities, communication services, they are going the other way just slightly. Some of the individual movers include Bitcoin hit again today and down 10 percent this week. It's just under the $56,000 mark, despite Bill Miller's enthusiasm here on the show yesterday. Moderna is higher after it struck a COVID vaccine deal with Israel for 2022. Israel also got the option to buy doses of the vaccine tailored to treat COVID variants. We were just speaking uh, with Dr. Aslam Turchi about Moderna shares are up 6%. And shares of Intuitive Surgical are hitting a 52-week high after strong first quarter results. Procedures using its Da Vinci surgical system were up 16% from last year, and shares are up nearly 9%. Now to Rahel Solomon for a CNBC News update. Hi, Rahel. Hi, Kelly. Hello, everyone. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says that the conviction of Derek Chauvin does not mean that the nation can move on from addressing police misconduct. He says that he will push for legislation that will end systemic bias in law enforcement. Seven Republican congressmen have pledged to not take donations from big tech companies or their executives. They accuse them of being monopolies that can threaten personal liberty. Facebook has already paused its donations, and Alphabet and Amazon have halted donations to lawmakers who voted against certifying the 2020 election results. Russian President Vladimir Putin warning the West not to threaten its security interests and promising swift retaliation if so-called red lines are crossed. Now you can see what else Putin said about the pandemic and his opponents within Russia tonight on the News with Shepard Smith. And starting today, the FAA is allowing small drones to be flown over people and at night. That is a big step towards their use for widespread commercial deliveries. And Kelly, you can wow. only imagine all of the industries that stand to benefit from that. And they, so nation, like I, this could be happening in my neighborhood tonight? Um, it, it, it appears so, according to the press release. So wow. um, I'm not sure how I feel about that personally, but at <laughs> least for the industries that stand to benefit, I'm sure uh, some good news for them. Kids would love it. It's yeah, that's too. bedtime. <laughs> Rahel, thank you very much. Rahel Solomon. Still ahead, a key Apple supplier is the latest high-profile victim of a ransomware attack. The eye-popping amount hackers are demanding and whether the company plans to pay it is coming up. But first, once red-hot SPACs seem to be cooling off, we'll talk about what's behind that slowdown later on The Exchange. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back. It's no secret the pandemic has disrupted the supply chain. But as people emerge from lockdown and begin to spend at record levels, it could get even worse. Steve Leisman has more on just how long this could go on. Steve. Yeah, Kelly, surging consumer demand in the U.S. and indeed around the world have ports backed up and prices soaring for shipping containers. That raises questions about just how temporary global supply disruptions and the attached price hikes are going to be. Mark, sorry. Sacconi, executive editor at the Journal of Commerce, says it's like Christmas every month. And he means the volumes of shipping that's going on, which is quite remarkable. I don't see when it's ending to talk when I talk to the container lines. Good luck trying to find space on a ship in May. The Port of Los Angeles has handled 800,000 TEUs or 20 foot equivalent units or containers in nine consecutive months through March. That didn't happen during a single month of 2019. So the problem is not that the ports aren't working. They're working overtime despite some COVID related issues. The real problem is the global supply chain right now is overwhelmed. 
Bruce Kasman of J.P. Morgan points out that global trade volumes have actually surpassed the pre-pandemic level. He has his doubts these cost increases are going away anytime soon. He tells me when you run the global industrial complex hot for six to 12 months, there's enough pressure to push prices up. Supply disruptions, now a regular feature in many company earning reports this season. The price increase is already filtering down to some extent to the consumer level. If these issues linger, the only way to deal with them is, well, you got to build ports and you have to build shipping capacity. And Kelly, that takes years, so this could be a problem that is maybe more than a bit temporary. And everybody has their own anecdote about this, Steve. Every industry you talk to, even just... You know, we're putting an aluminum fence across the backyard twice as much as it would have been last year. But we're trying to pen the kids in. But have all countries benefited equally from this export surge? Because a lot of it does seem to go back to China. I'm I'm ignoring that comment about penning the kids in and I'm moving on to answering your question. We can talk about that offline, Kelly. But for the moment, what looks to be happening is China and North Asia, indeed, is really uh, dominating this process. If you look at the China share of global exports, it has surged recently. So it's really taking up the slacks. And interesting, relative to U.S. growth, which has been quite strong, U.S. exporters are not doing as well to, to this point relative to the really underperforming. And the reason is because they can't get, uh, in some cases, they can't get space on container ships. Yeah, I absolutely get it. And you, then you don't want to build out all this extra space and not need it. You'd have a horrible, you know, recession uh, following that in the years ahead. It's a very difficult problem. Uh, Steve, we appreciate it for now. Thank you. And we'll talk about penning in the kids another time. One of the biggest software IPOs ever, Soccer's Not So Super League, and Palm Payments. It's all coming up in rapid fire right after this quick break. And it's Financial Literacy Month. CNBC is sharing messages from business and thought leaders about the importance of financial education. Here's the president of the New York Stock Exchange, Stacey Cunningham. The American dream is not only about being able to start a business and earn a living, it's about sharing that success too. It's a story of shared success. And every day here, we see companies coming in, changing the world, and allowing investors to dream alongside them. Financial literacy is such an important part of that, so investors know how to take advantage of the opportunities that are out there for them. Welcome back. Let's catch you up on several stories that need to be on your radar today. It is time for Rapid Fire. Here to help us break down those headlines, John Ford, Deirdre Bosa, and Wilfred Frost, who we welcome for a reason you might be able to guess, but we're going to save that for just a couple of minutes. We're going to begin with software firm and CNBC disruptor UiPath making its debut on the New York Stock Exchange with ticker PATH today. It is up about 22%, well above its range of $52 to $54 a share. They make software robots that automate office tasks. The CEO telling Deirdre earlier he believes they can completely reshape the future of how people work. Its $34 billion valuation today makes it one of the biggest software IPOs in U.S. history, Deirdre, and nobody's talking about it. No one cares. No one seems to ever have heard about this company before outside of, you know, you guys and us here on CNBC. <laughs> Even you know, it was interesting. You, you saw Scott ask the traders about it on halftime and they were all like, eh, like it just no one was. Like, why? What's the difference between Snowflake and this one? You know, every once in a while, Kelly, a software company comes along that no one cares about or feels that way, and they sort of blow up. And, you know, UiPath could be one of those. It is well known in Silicon Valley. I've had many conversations with many VCs about this company, and they are very, very excited. What it does, also, the business model is super interesting. It's in this, you know, really edgy robotic space, but what it does, it's software that actual employees can use. You don't have to be an engineer or a developer. Um, It grew its customers from 700 to 
8,000 in the span of just a few years. And the founder is really interesting, too. He once said no to a billion dollars from Masasan. And today I asked him, you know, are you worried about leaving money on the table? And he said, no, because we choose our investors for the long term. You always have to decide. So I certainly think even though it may not be a household name, this is one company to watch. Fort, what would you say? I say it's an enterprise company. Like most people have not heard of yeah. enterprise companies, don't care about enterprise companies, even when they blow up. Now, that said, this is one of those Athena situations where it's springing full grown from the head of Zeus. I mean, $34 billion <laughs> roughly. That, that's not small. This is no, this isn't one of those typical kind of SPAC offerings that we're seeing that I know we're going to talk about. Uh, so you got to be careful on valuation here as always. Actually, let's skip ahead uh, to talk about the SPAC craze for just a moment. We'll come back to everything else. Um, we've got new data showing that this is actually hitting a wall. So yes, UiPath, okay, it's up decently today. SPAC's not so much. Uh, in fact, we've kind of hit a brick wall. After more than 100 SPAC deals in March alone, there have been just 10 SPAC IPOs this month. That's in part to a crackdown by the SEC, which recently proposed accounting guidance that would essentially mean all SPACs would have to completely reconfigure their financials, which according I mean, which could be an accounting nightmare. Just two firms audited 90 percent of all SPACs over the past six years, Wilf. Yesterday on the show, Bill Miller told us he thought the SPAC game is winding down and that many of the names that went public came at an extraordinarily expensive valuation. So what's kind of the meta takeaway here, Wilf, do you think? Or is it just that this is an accounting flub that's going to blow up in a big way? Well, I think clearly they have slowed down and uh, I guess not total surprise there because last month was, was such a blowout and last quarter was such a blowout. I think the thing that's interesting to me, and uh, don't forget all those investment banks had blowout capital markets, this was a big part of it last quarter, is whether if there is more of a pullback in SPAC uh, activity, if that is uh, correlated with or also causing a pullback in other capital market activity, mm. doesn't seem that way so far based on comments from the city CEO yesterday, Brian Moynihan, last week. Whilst they weren't saying this boom in capital markets is going to continue forever. They, they weren't warning us off another good quarter to come. Whether the SPACs part of it slows down within it seems it's not dragging down the rest of the capital market activity. And maybe that's the way, Deirdre, to tie together what's been kind of this collapse and what's been going on with the SPACs and, and this kind of mild, mildly exciting UiPath IPO that is exciting in all the ways it should be, right? But it, it, is it that there is kind of not froth coming out of the IPO space, but maybe people kind of taking a breath here? Well, this is the key difference to me between traditional IPOs and SPACs. Traditional IPOs have to look backwards at a record of financial performance. SPACs can make these sort of <laughs> huge claims about the future. The whole model to me is really curious. You have someone like Tamat Palahapatia who burst onto the scene, told investors, you know, I'm going to choose a great company. So put your faith and put your, your money into my blank check company. And then what does he do in the case of Virgin Galactic? He cashes out a few months later, and it's those retail investors left with a lot of the losses. So I just wonder if there have to be different rules, as you talked about, but perhaps different lockup periods, too. John, a final word on all this? You know what I like about SPACs is they brought the IPO market a little bit back to what it used to be. And I know SPACs aren't IPOs, but that, that earlier stage company that you're really kind of taking a flyer on. Now, the accounting stuff needs to be worked out, yes. But there are too many UiPath type stories where these companies are coming to market. You know, th there's too much certainty built into them already. Give investors a chance to do the research, get in on something early, you know, become one of those couples in the next, you know, Bezos shareholder letter that happens 20 years from now where you got in super early and right. uh, put a couple bucks in and now you can send a kid to college. Yeah, exactly. Wouldn't that be nice? Uh, Deirdre, speaking of bringing it back, the new Uber CEO is behaving a little bit like the old one on Twitter right now. What's going on? Can you bring us up to speed? <laughs> 
Yeah, so there's been, um, let's call it a Twitter spat this morning. Um, Uber is expanding into Germany, where Just Eat Takeaway, European food delivery company, is the dominant player. So you saw this back and forth between the Just Eat Takeaway CEO, Yitzhak Grohn, um, and Uber's current CEO, Dara Khosrow Shahi. Yitzhak basically said, um, here you are trying to sort of hit our stock in the short run. Dara said, don't worry about, about your stock price. Look at the long term. Yitzhak hit back saying, look at your uh, labor model, which of course right. we know, Kelly, Uber has been under a lot of pressure. So it's all sort of more, this is kind of a microcosm of this really fierce battle in food delivery, right? This business that has overtaken ride sharing for Uber, that it's putting so much money and resources into. And it raises the question, how much more money are they going to spend? Just eat, by the way, acquiring Grubhub. So this battle, it's not just on the other side of the Atlantic. It's going to be coming home. Too. Uh, this just reminds me of why I love Twitter so much is being able to. I learned so much <laughs> watching CEOs fight with one another where there's no other forum where you could see it this candidly. Um, speaking of Europe, this is really the, the main thing I want to talk about today. And Wilfred Frost, I, I want I, I just I need I need to hear. They create this super league, this soccer league, okay, seemingly out of nowhere, catches everybody by surprise. It'd be like if the NFL said, we're going to take the Cowboys and, I mean, who are the other big teams? I was going to say the Giants. I don't know if that's true anymore. You know, we're going to have our own super league. We're going to have our own TV contract. You guys have to fend for yourselves. Hopefully you'll make it. The fans freak out. The whole thing implodes. And that's what. So what happens next? Well, I mean, we go back to normal. I mean, that's what's the monumental failure of execution, as you were alluding there. Uh, to Kelly and, and a massive PR disaster for the 12 owners involved. So what exactly happened initially? Those 12 shareholders decided that they would greedily steamroll the interests of their stakeholders, in this interest, the players and the fans. But they totally underestimated the power of those stakeholders, hmm. particularly the fans, particularly in a social media age. And within two days, it's been turned on its head. It's totally collapsed. And what I think will be interesting to see from here is whether it's more than just a PR disaster for those owners. And if somewhere or another, some of them get forced out, of course, that would take someone to buy thinking? the club. I mean, did they just think, well, we kind of like this. Who I mean, how, how could so they have gotten it so wrong? The, the starting point was, and uh, don't forget, there's a few U.S. owners here who may also have owned some U.S. sports franchises. What they wanted to do was move towards the valuations that the NFL teams have here, which is many multiples of, say, Manchester United listed on the U.S. Uh, New York Stock Exchange, valued at $2.7 billion, despite having many millions more fans around the world than an NFL franchise. Why the difference in valuation? Hmm. Because there's no relegation in the U.S. There's no need to qualify for the biggest competitions every year. And that's what they were trying to design here, so that these 12 founding members would permanently be in the top competition. They yep. wouldn't need to qualify each year, and with that, more guaranteed revenue. And they traded there, essentially money for merit, which is the driving force in European soccer at the moment, and the fans weren't having it. I, here's what I love, John, about this this year. It seems to continue this trend. If you look at what's happened in GameStop and crypto to some extent here, it's like the little guys, and I, I, I don't mean it, they're fighting back and they're saying no. And, they're, and to me, it all kind of melds with, what the, with social media and the changes the internet brings us, which are you can harness the power of the fan base in ways you could never before, I mean, look what Taylor Swift is doing. She's harnessing the power of her fan base to fight against investors in big music labels. And I think people realize, to Will's point, John, if they don't like this deal that the owners came up with, they can literally shut it down. Uh, I, I love those connections you made, Kelly. I'm just stunned that we have found yet another way that I don't understand soccer. Um, <laughs> 
you know, <laughs> Super League? Like, what are the leagues that are there already? How many teams? Manchester United, you know, Barca, what? what? Yeah. I, don't, I don't get it. But, it, but I love John, hearing Wolf talk about it. It's, it's very important. I know it's very important. I am, and it's football, not soccer. It's like soccer. UI, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's the I'm enterprise I'm so with tech. you on that. I yeah, haven't... Of sports. I haven't been... <laughs> I haven't been this bewildered by a story since Dogecoin's rise earlier this week and last week, Kelly. Uh, I, I got nothing to add here. <laughs> Wolf, then we'll bring it back to you for a final word on this, because I think you, you put it well that this is a battle of shareholders and stakeholders in which the stakeholders appear to have won. So, so I think the interesting thing from here, it's probably unlikely that these people will be forced to sell because there's only so many buyers with, with the billions needed. But in Germany, there was no German clubs as the founding 12 members. 51% by law is mandated to be owned by fans groups. And then there's an election every year for who run the, runs the club. So the fans have a say. I think there's a high chance now that the consequence of this and the, those owners will be regretting the day that they tried to push the, the boundaries too far will be some kind of law. And Oliver Dowd and the, the, the minister for sport in the UK is already talking about this, where board representation to some level will have to contain some fan membership. And, and those owners will regret the day they, they push their stakeholders too far and the stakeholders I mean, got something written into law to protect why their Why do they even need forward. a seat on the board? They've proven they don't even need one to make their case. Well, They're quite, powerful enough. Look at John's face. They're powerful enough what now? it is. We're going to move on. Before we go, Amazon is getting hands-on with grocery shoppers, testing palm scanning at Whole Foods in Seattle. They're planning to roll it out across other locations. But the Amazon One software allows shoppers to pay for items simply by scanning their palm over a device. And they have to pair that, obviously, to a credit card the first time, but then they can just use their palm after that. Deirdre, I feel like every two weeks we hear, you know, Amazon's opening a hair salon and Amazon's doing... I mean, is this a legitimate, (laughs) you know, innovation that we're going to be using and have to pay attention to? You know, it goes back to the Bezos philosophy. It's always day one, always be innovating. Some hit the mark, some don't. The hair salon, I have my doubts on. But Amazon is a major player in payments. I think that that could be something. We know that they've been making moves in this space in terms of payments with their just walkout technology. This is a little bit different, but the question has always been, will they license it out? And in today's press release, um, Amazon said that they were looking at putting this in places like stadiums. So this could be another um, major moneymaker revenue stream for Amazon. Never count them out, of course. Maybe even the hair salon. Or a passing fad. What do you think? Well, I just think that this is slightly less scary to me than what we already all do now on our iPhones is having our face scanned. So I'm kind of a little more open to having my hand scanned. Uh, I get it. Fingerprints are important and all that kind of stuff. but, But it's not an eye scan or a face scan. So... I think if it speeds it up and it's a, a, a well protected by a company that's unlikely to get hacked and has all the necessary protections, I'm kind of okay with it. Not, well, not embracing of it, but okay with it. John Ford, final word. I was just happy I don't have to touch anything to do it, but right. I'm still not sure I want to give them biometric information. I'm fine just waving my phone over the thing to pay. I think I'll just stick with that. Yeah, as you unlock it with your face. At least I do. John Ford, yeah, but at least it's Bosa. still on the device. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay. Wilfred Frost, we appreciate all very, very much for a special edition of Rapid Fire today. Coming up, as Apple was unveiling its newest hardware yesterday, one of its main suppliers was dealing with a $50 million ransomware attack. We're going to look at who the hackers uh, are, what they were able to steal, and more next. Don't forget, you can always watch us live using the CNBC app any time of the night or day. We're back in a couple.
Welcome back. One of Apple's key suppliers is the latest high-profile victim of a ransomware attack, and the cyber criminals are demanding $50 million by May 1st. Eamon Javers has the story for us. Eamon? Yeah, hey, Kelly. The company here is called Quanta Computer. It trades out of Taiwan. It's a supplier to Apple and other American technology companies. The hacking group here is called R-Evil, and they put out this statement earlier this week announcing that they had hacked Quanta and have some technical documents from inside the company. They say, today, we, the R-Evil group, will provide data on the upcoming releases of the company so beloved by many. Tim Cook can say, thank you, Quanta. So to prove that they have what they say they have, the hacking group has put up documents like these all over the dark web. We have a source uh, who went on the dark web for us. These are technical specs for some uh, Apple products, or at least our evil says these are technical specs for some Apple products. I don't want to get too close to them so we don't show them uh, because they're potentially stolen intellectual property here from, from the company. Uh, no comment yet from Apple on this. We've reached out to everybody involved, uh, but it is fascinating and does put a decision point here for the company. Now, at the same time, the Department of Justice today is deciding to launch a new task force on exactly this issue, ransomware, and they say they're going to focus on the relationship between the government and the private sector. They say the task force will examine the ways the department can encourage organizations to come forward and notify the department if and when they become victims in order for the government to investigate and provide information that enables effective incident response and remediation. So the Department of Justice saying its new task force is going to go at exactly this issue, which is this wave of ransomware attacks that we've seen all across the economy uh, that have been impacting companies and that decision point that companies have to make now of whether or not they should pay these hackers. The Department of Justice, Kelly, says it's going to devote more resources toward intelligence uh, and all sorts of education inside DOJ to get to the root of this problem, but a very tricky one now for Apple and its supplier. Yeah, this is at the one end of the spectrum, Eamon. Most of the activity is now happening at the other end. Small and medium-sized businesses out $150,000 trying to deal with this. How, how does everybody decide whether to pay or not? Right. Well, that's the big question. It's a lot of money here, right? One company we talked to, one, one a negotiator we talked to said he had heard of a company being hit for $70 million, in this case, $50 million. And the bottom line is, Kelly, they decide to pay based on whether or not they feel like they can stay in business without paying, right? If a company feels like it can unlock its computers on its own, it can control access to its data, then it won't pay. But if it feels like it is out of business if they don't pay, that's an existential threat and they pay up. Wow. So they have no choice. I mean, this is a conversation for next time, Eamon, but they need right. more help. This is like this is a this is warfare. They're right. sh it's crazy. Um, anyway, it you're all over it now. It Eamon, we is. appreciate yep. it. Eamon Javers in Washington. That does it for us today. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day. Same time, same place. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.